and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and ages and ages ago, I went... Basically, I, I sort of went into a, a deep dive on uh, several of my long boxes, and during that process, I found, I am not exaggerating, I am not kidding, a shit ton of old issues of Wizard Magazine. And for those of you who don't know, I think now would probably be a pretty good time for me to say that I fucking love Wizard Magazine. And I mean like old school, like 1992 to maybe like 1996 or 97, something like that. That era of Wizard, right? It was, it was just great. And so, not very long ago, I released an episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality that was all about Wizard number 44. And so, the reaction to that was was actually pretty positive. I mean, I don't really give a shit. It's just that it's, it, it's kind of nice that the listeners enjoy the same stuff that you do. Or, or lacking that, maybe that they enjoy the fact that you enjoyed it. Maybe that's another way of looking at it. And uh, so, all the same, I thought, you know, might be kind of fun to do another, to do a, a an episode about another issue of of Wizard. And as I say, I've got no shortage of issues of Wizard to choose from. So today's issue of Wizard, this is going to be Wizard number forty. Cover date is December of 1994. The actual on sale date would have been October of 1994 and basically this is the Halloween issue for for the year this is this is uh this issue of wizard this is basically supposed to be the scary issue you know and so there's a lot of uh, there's a little bit more of like a spooky sort of horror theme to this issue as will become evident as we go along but nevertheless that is that is something that that we should be aware of and actually the subject matter of this particular issue of wizard which again is number 40 the subject matter for this particular issue of wizard actually touches upon some stuff that i have been wanting to talk about on trinus magnus punches reality for a pretty long time now and so I don't know, maybe this will be a good sort of sample for it. So, anyway, uh, no sense burying the lead. Uh, basically, one of one of the main elements of, of this issue, this is basically a feature. It's an interview that's all about... Well, it's an interview with Frank Miller, and it's sort of... I get the idea that this interview was already on the books, meaning that... At the time that this interview was conducted, arrangements had already been made between Miller and Wizard to do this interview. And so I can only imagine that the the writer of of this feature, Jack Curtin, I can only assume that Jack Curtin must have thought he had struck gold when 
Frank Miller had that infamous diamond uh, seminar thing. He basically, basically Frank Miller burned the entire fucking comic book industry in effigy. I mean, he, he, he was careful to exempt certain parts of the comic book industry, but in the main, he, he was, uh, he was determined to upset a lot of people. And this interview was conducted not very long after his infamous speech. And honestly, I don't know how much, how much of that speech I really want to get into on this, uh, on this episode. Number one, it's just, it's really long. All right. Really long. And it's not exactly riveting podcasting to sit here reading shit out of, out of a magazine, like verbatim directly out of a magazine. So I guess there's that. Number two, I don't know this to be true, but I would imagine that the the text of the speech itself, like some kind of a transcript, is it's got to be just like a Google search away. So I don't know, but I, I haven't actually completely made up my mind, even as I record all this, you know, how much of that speech that I actually want to include in this episode. But nevertheless, I do I, I do need to emphasize the fact this interview was conducted, like, I get the idea, maybe not like the day after he gave that speech, but not very long after he gave that speech. And in particular, he turned both barrels on Marvel Comics. And like I say, I mean, he just basically just completely pilloried uh, Marvel Comics. And this is one of those things where you kind of needed to be there, you know? If this is one of those things that just kind of went by you, at, at, you know, when you were collecting comics back in 1994, if this just somehow went right by you and for somehow you were just living under a rock and you never knew what happened, or worse yet, you, you entered your fandom, your comic book collecting sometime after all of this, I... I'm not trying to sound like a douchebag. It's just that I don't think you're going to understand the true import of this. I mean, this this speech that he gave at that Diamond uh, Distributor seminar thing, the shockwaves that sent through... I mean, there was a point there for like... Um, I want to say it was probably like two months solid where every... This is no exaggeration. Every single time I went to my LCS... That you could rest assured somebody was in there and they were talking about it because for a lot of people, he was basically giving new information and I'm spending way more time on this than I actually thought I would. So I'm just going to go ahead and get straight into the article here. He now, guys, I should say just in terms of printing like the 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 page, the layout of the page, this is all very 90s chic. And so. It's got what was at the time a very trendy layout. These days, this is actually sort of an annoying layout. Now, the letters that are printed in red, this is basically the interviewer, whereas the letters that are printed in black, these are Frank Miller's words. And so if you're, if you're not following along, or if you are following along, for whatever reason, I felt like telling you that. But anyway... The interview kicks off, and boy, they don't exactly bury the lead on this. Uh... Jack Curtin, again, the interviewer for for this piece and the writer, 
He knew where the red meat was in any interview that you conduct with Frank Miller in the latter half of 1994. So he just goes straight into it. He says, You sure did raise a few eyebrows at the Diamond Seminar. You said in your speech that the comic industry has, quote, a sad, sorry history, unquote. You added, quote, I can't call it the Marvel Age of Comics because I don't believe in rewarding thievery, unquote. Strong words. Miller's response, well, the sort of clouded, confused history that most people have of comics causes a lot of problems. We could make some critical mistakes right now if we don't honestly look at where we've been. It seems across the years that Marvel in particular has done absolutely nothing to redress the iniquities of the situation with Kirby and Ditko and the rest of the early creators. And I believe Marvel should be taken to task for it. Now, I want to put this thing on pause and say that, guys, I think it's, it's kind of implicit, if you actually read the speech that he gave, it's implicit that DC is included in this condemnation. Now, the exact comments that he's making here relating to, to uh, Jack Kirby, related to Steve Ditko, you could, I mean, obviously, obviously there's not any real applicability there going on with, with DC. And yet, in a kind of way, there sort of is, not specifically with Ditko and Kirby, but perhaps uh, Siegel and Schuster, Bill Finger. I, I think Bob Kane basically got a good deal, which is one of the reasons why I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for Siegel and Schuster. Kane waltzed into Vincent Sullivan's office and got himself a sweetheart deal. So what was stopping Siegel and Schuster from having done the same thing? I mean, they make it sound like they got cheated out of something. No, they didn't negotiate a very good deal. I mean, it's really that simple. Now, in terms of the specifics with Ditko and Kirby, I think with Kirby, what he basically wanted was his art back. With Ditko, I never actually, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I never completely understood what Ditko's beef with Marvel was supposed to be all about. He always seemed, actually, before I get into that, because of the fact that I've never understood what his beef was all about, because of the fact that it's all just been so vague and abstract, the impression that I've sort of developed over the years is that Ditko has been a little bit of a prima donna. He had these sort of vague and sort of abstract ideas of what he wanted to do with his work. That Guys, this is the same guy that basically visually defined the 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 world of Doctor Strange. You know, you can't say that he didn't have a pretty long leash to run on, but for whatever reason, the same guy that did Doctor Strange, he wanted stuff that apparently was just too fucking weird, even for the same company that published Doctor Strange. So that's just the the impression that I've gotten. Now, how true is that? I honestly don't know. But it's just, it's just something that I've never completely understood. So anyway, getting back into the interview, uh, Jack Curtin says, You were pretty rough on Marvel. Do you think you've burned all your bridges there? Miller's response, not at all. You know, there's this strange part of the comic book mentality, which is what I call the paycheck by silence. Keep your mouth shut or you'll suffer. I've always been vocal whether working for Marvel or not, about what I think is wrong or is being done wrong. 
If I'm asked today where comics are going wrong, in the midst of the total collapse of the superhero universes at a time when the works of Lee and Kirby and Ditko are being literally strip-mined to the point of idiocy, then I will speak my mind. If I thought Dark Horse, which is my current publisher, was completely off the wall and harming the industry, I'd say that too. My relationship with Marvel has been very good. We've, uh, we've both profited very well. Nothing is owed on either end. But the issues of the past do need to be addressed because Jack Kirby may be gone, but he's still got a family. And Marvel still hasn't done one single thing to credit him or to pay him back. And it gets a little bit windy from there. So I just want to put this thing back on pause and say that, look, I'm, I would not be the first person to point out the fact that Frank Miller has always been kind of a firebrand and a bomb thrower. This is a guy that he, I would say increasingly throughout his career, never hesitated to court controversy and... I can't help thinking that he really did have honorable motives in making this speech because he's basically said that he doesn't see a whole lot of originality coming out of Marvel and by logical proxy out of DC these days, meaning in 1994. And so he, he was very deeply concerned about what does that suggest about the future? You know, if we can't build something new in the present, what future can we possibly expect? Now, I somewhat uh, take umbrage at that because, guys, the fact is, stories about Batman have been published, like new stories have been published every single month since 1939, okay? Batman seems like he's doing okay. The first Spider-Man uh, comic book came out, I think it was in 1962, and so from 1962 going all the way up to 1994, new Spider-Man stories were being told and the Clone Saga notwithstanding, everything was okay. So on and so forth, right? And I'm not here to tell you that I think he was wrong. I just, I, I kind of wonder, was he perhaps missing the forest for the trees, you know? Now, look, I'm sitting here sort of finger-wagging a... At this point, not only is Frank Miller... And I mean now, in 2020, not only is Frank Miller an industry veteran, the only fair and accurate way to to sum him up is to say that he's an industry fucking legend, okay? he When he put pen to paper, or pencil to paper, on any on any single page of his entire career, he instantly has drawn, or for that matter, written, more comic book pages than I ever have. Just that first one. So I want to be, I, I, I want it to be understood that I know my place in this, but it's like, at the same time, the reason I think I, I, I still have kind of a point of view here is that there are times when I think comic book pros forget about the perspective of comic book fans. God knows that's been a problem with comics for the last I'll just be charitable and say the last five years, but I mean, frankly, you could just as easily say 10 years or 15 years, but certainly for the last five years, I think you can accurately say that comic book pros have forgotten about the, the perspective of comic book fans. And where the rubber meets the road on that is to say that 
Is every single Spider-Man comic book that's ever been published from 1962 going right on up to 1994, is every single one of those a completely original work with no dependency or, or derivation of something from the past, iconic Spider-Man moments, basically being retreaded into oblivion? Obviously, there's been a lot of repeating with Spider-Man. Like, if Spider-Man is ever anywhere underground and there's some kind of a cave-in, you can pretty well figure where that where that's going to go. We, we've all seen that same exact story a thousand fucking times over by now. So having said all of that, things like, uh, Peter Parker marrying Mary Jane or, you know what? Love it or hate it. One more day. Um, or brand new day, I should say, but fuck it. One more day. Or for that matter, the events of civil war, Peter Parker revealing to the world that he is Spider-Man, there have been a lot of new elements introduced into the Spider-Man mythos. And to my understanding, Spider-Man, just that corner of the Marvel Universe, it really has matured in in recent years where Spider- well, Peter, Peter is basically, he's pretty much fulfilled his potential. Because when you think about it, teenage Peter Parker being a complete loser actually makes a lot of sense, you know? Somebody who's that brilliant and gifted and talented and all that, he's naturally going to be sort of on the outs with his teenage peer group. But the idea of adult Peter Parker being a loser, I mean, look, we live in a very, like, post-post Revenge of the Nerds kind of world. I mean, there's just no real reason why Peter Parker would grow up to be a complete and total loser. He would grow up to be Tony Stark, or he'd grow up to be Reed Richards, or basically, he would grow up to be... a famous inventor, a uh, a uh, captain of industry. You know, he would be... that's who he would be, you know? And I guess I like the fact that at some point, that eventually gets acknowledged where, you know, I think at one point Peter had his own tech company... And so my point is to say that, no, change does not come quickly in comics, but you can't argue that, that the Peter Parker about, whom, uh, about whose life we were reading in comic books in 1980 is, he was living a very different life from the Peter Parker whose comics are being published in 2020, right? Very different life. And so this, I know that people throw around the term, the illusion of change and when it comes to comics pretty often, but there, you know, I'm not saying that necessarily all of these changes are for the good, but there has been change guys. So anyway, again, I'm not trying to tell Miller that he's wrong. I just think that he's sort of missing a little bit on the fan perspective here. So anyway, let's see. Um, the interviewer goes on to say, oh God, there's just, there, there's a lot of stuff. Golly, there's a lot of stuff. Jack Curtin asks, that was one thing I was going to ask about. You actively went after Daredevil. It wasn't just a fortuitous assignment, question mark? Miller's response, oh no, I wanted it. Joe Duffy, who was editing the book, fought for me, and Jim, uh, Jim Shooter took a chance on me. And I was real grateful for it. The first few issues that I drew were written by Roger McKenzie, 
Then I took over after 10 issues or so. Daredevil had several advantages for me. One was that he wasn't super powerful and couldn't fly, so he wasn't too fantastic, too big for the stories that I wanted to do. And another, honestly, was that the book just was just selling horribly. That's the best time to get a hold of a character. It worked for me on Daredevil, and it worked later on Batman. Everybody's more willing to take chances, and you get a lot more leeway. Once something's a success, management begins to start convincing themselves that they are the reason, and they start writing up Bibles and such, and it becomes really claustrophobic. Interviewer asks, Do you have any reaction to the changes Marvel has made in Daredevil of late? Miller's response, All I know is Daredevil's got some really funky-looking new costume, and they're bringing back a character they call Elektra, but it couldn't really be her because she's dead. And, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I'm one of those people who thinks that if you're going to kill off an existing character, there really needs to be a good reason for that. If you're going to write a story where, like it's a Superman story, and somebody kills Ron Troop, you really need to have some very serious justification for that in the story, because... Ron Troop is not exactly an iconic member of Superman's supporting cast. I would imagine that even among comic book fans, a lot of people have never even heard of him. But at the same time, this character was created quite a few decades ago. He does have a history. Like, I think it was created in like 1990 or 91 or something like that. Maybe 92. Something like it, It's around there. You're on the right track. And... He does have a history, and there there are things that happened in in his background. And so for somebody to just come along and just willy-nilly kill the character just because they want to sell their new villain as this big, huge, giant, dangerous threat, that is just such a fucking hack thing to do. And you really need to justify the death of any character in the story. Unless... This is a character that you created. And then I think, I'm not talking about, you know, legally, or for that matter, even from a creative standpoint. I mean, strictly from, like, a moral standpoint, perhaps, that this is a character that you created. And, I mean, at least if you're doing some kind of work-for-hire type of thing with DC or Marvel, you understand you don't own this character, but in a deeper sense, I think you do kind of own this character, and you should be the the captain of that character's destiny. If anybody's if anybody has the right to kill this character off, it's you. And Miller created Electra. It was Miller's preference that Electra be killed off in Daredevil number one eighty one, and so she was. And for him, that's where the character ends. And I understand who really owns Elektra at the end of the day, but I kind of have to come down with Miller on this one. I mean, Elektra is fucking dead. It's simple as that. So, moving right along here, I don't know. The, there's a lot more that could be said about this interview, but... I don't know. It just, it starts getting kind of windy and I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to turn this into 
the Frank Miller episode, you know? So uh, just to kind of uh, swing over to, to something else in, uh, in this issue, this is... Yeah, this is entitled The Other Batman by Patrick Daniel O'Neill. And this is basically sort of a an extended interview with the creative team behind The Batman Adventures. And basically explaining who their version of Batman is, where he comes from, and really what motivates what motivates this this version of uh, of Batman like this Batman comic book and this this is done less as a less as an interview and more as a feature and so it's a, honestly that makes it a little bit harder to just kind of get pull quotes out of as as we go along but i i guess just to kind of take it from the top one of the things that i do want to emphasize is the fact that you know there was really nothing else like the batman adventures that was coming out back in those days because Especially in the 90s, you could say that a lot of comics, for for as important as art was assumed to be in the 90s, I think one of the things that people tend to forget about is just how much text is uh, there, there is to be found in the average comic book published from oh, any, anywhere from 1991 to, I'll just, I'll, I'll just say 1995. The amount of of thought balloons, dialogue balloons, narration captions, so on and so forth, guys, it, it it's a lot. It's a lot higher than you might think. And one of the things that always set uh, the Batman Adventures apart for me, especially when you start getting into the uh, the issues teens and then going forward. One of the things that you find out real quick is that, you know, we are getting, I don't know about fewer, there's just a little bit less text in every single issue. I don't know if, I don't know if that's necessarily the most accurate way to put it, but there are certain issues of the Batman adventures that I swear to think have at least, or rather, at most, half the text of a conventional comic book, maybe even less. There are a lot of uh, pages at a time that don't have any kind of narration, any kind of uh, dialogue balloons, no thought balloons, no nothing. It's just the art. And the art is telling the story. And number one, it's really hard to write a comic book in that way. Number two, it's got to be just as hard to find an artist who's capable of carrying out the story in that way. And number three, it's really hard to do that for more than just one page. But you can find issues of the Batman Adventures which have pages and pages and pages of of virtually no text. And in some cases, absolutely no text. A lot of cases, absolutely no text. And so just from a stylistic point of view, just just that one thing right there is enough to set the Batman adventures apart from, I would say, just the the great majority of other comics that, that, that were being published just at the time, you know. So but anyway, getting into a pull quote, uh, quote though, this is on page 87. Uh, it says, 
In Batman Adventures, Batman is not human, Puckett continues. Well, he is. If he got shot in the head, he'd die. But our Batman is more capable than any human being ever really could be. <clears throat> He's more dedicated than any human could be. You don't sympathize with the Batman in the Batman Adventures. You admire him. He's more of a classical hero. Puckett's editor, Scott Peterson, agrees, calling the protagonist of Batman Adventures a little more pure. His anguish is a little closer to the surface, but he's also a bit better at putting it away for the time being. To be honest, I think one of the differences is also simply the elimination of any subplots. In the course of each issue, our Batman is totally committed to solving the problem. The most we'll have is one or two panels of him looking at a picture of his parents over the fireplace. But the regular books have to spend pages going over the continuity elements. I'm going to put this back on pause and say all of that stuff is actually very true. This is a this is almost like a Zen Batman, or at least he presents as a Zen Batman. He's very he's he he's basically got this kind of bizarre internal discipline where. Being as it's Batman, you kind of know what what his traumas are. You know what you know what they are. It's just a canonical part of of Batman's existence, and we all know this. And yet you watch how he carries himself or how he proceeds through the narrative in any of these issues, in any of these stories. And it's those things very rarely ever bubble up to the surface. You know, the lonely childhood. The trauma of watching his his parents die, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that stuff, it's it's like it it's it's there, it's in the background, it shapes him, but it doesn't affect him. And I guess what I like about that is the fact that that realization gives the character this kind of quiet and unspoken internal strength. You know, it's almost like this guy is it's almost like he's a little bit more mind, no mind. Uh, about things where he simply is and that's honestly there is a sense in which that does <clears throat> that does kind of foreshadow grant morrison's run on batman but this is just kind of going in a in a different way i think and i i just i appreciate that let's see what else oh and uh, t uh touching back on just the style of the book um, I do want to touch on that. It uh, There's a little bit of sort of back padding and mutual admiration society shit that's going on here. But in this case, I really do think it's well-deserved. Uh, pull quote is, Peterson is equally effusive in his praise of the art team of Mike Perobeck and inker Rick Burchette. Mike is such a phenomenal yet underrated talent. His storytelling is so strong, so unbelievably dramatic, yet so clear. His anatomy is absolutely perfect. He's amazing, Peterson says. He's been inked by dozens of different inkers, but nobody inks him like R Rick Burchette. Rick takes him to some higher level. The synergy between them is phenomenal. They're both so good independently. It's like Lennon and McCartney. Individually, they're geniuses. Together, they're history-making. And honestly, I think that's laying it on a bit thick. But at the same time, <clears throat> I mean, it is true that I think maybe Perobeck gets a little bit more credit and respect these days, but I don't remember him being anybody's favorite artist 
back during his run on the Batman Adventures. I mean, I loved his work. I loved the 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 power of it and how somehow it's like it's powerful yet it's simple and you know like what the fuck do I know about comic uh, comics or what do I know about art or anything like that but it's like I in this case I I knew what I didn't know and I understood at least enough to realize that it's the artist in 20 or maybe even a hundred but it's it it's not just anybody who can draw the way that Perobeck does with just this kind of simplicity on the one hand and power on the other. And a good sort of point counterpoint here, I mean, I can't believe that this was intentional, but on page 90, it, we get an inset in this interview. It's a picture of uh, Batman beating up some crooks. It's drawn by Mike Perobeck, I believe from Batman Adventures number 25. Could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that that's the one. And it's basically Perobeck's Batman and all of his glory. And he's taken on four guys at the same time. And he can do it because, damn it, that's just how good he is. And then, right next to that, we get this DC Comics house ad. This is uh, Batman Bloodstorm. <clears throat> drawn by Kelly Jones. Now, I like Kelly Jones. This is a very moody, very scary, very atmospheric type of art style that he's got and I love his work I love his work on Batman and also I just kind of like Kelly Jones on sort of a personal level he just seems like a really cool guy uh, I he and I are our Facebook friends and so what that means is I sent him a Facebook friend request and he accepted it and so I just look at the stuff that he posts on on Facebook and it's always all about comics and Everything that he that he does, it's it's in some way or another, his enthusiasm, his passion, his excitement about comics somehow comes through in every single thing that he posts. And he just seems like a really cool guy. I dig Kelly Jones. And I also so I dig him on a personal level. But then there's then there's the work, which is what we're really here to talk about anyway. And I think this stuff is for, is top shelf first rate. I love Kelly Jones's Batman. Again, it's not just anybody who could draw Batman in this way. I mean, this is very distinctively Kelly Jones. But having said all of that, the Batman that we see drawn by Parabek on page 90 is very different from the Batman that we see, I guess this technically would be page 91, drawn by Kelly Jones. I mean, these are very different versions of the character. And the thing is, for as powerful as and just strong as Kelly Jones's Batman appears to be in this ad on page 91 he does the, the Batman that we see on page 90 drawn by Perobeck it's like somehow against all odds that version of uh, Perobeck's version of Batman gives up nothing to Kelly Jones's Batman in terms of uh his, just sheer power you know and the thing is, this is this is the Elseworlds Batman. This is the vampire Batman. You know, this Batman is not even completely human. And ostensibly, Perobeck's Batman is human, and yet somehow he they both look to be just about on equal footing with each other. And it's just such this amazing... Again, I don't know if this was done intentionally, but this is such an amazing 
sort of dichotomy, almost like point counterpoint of two very different Batman, neither of which are the mainstream DC universe Batman, but yet they're both Batman and they're both extremely powerful. And anyways, so there's that. Um, Next, this is getting into page 92. This is a feature that's called Dark Legend. And it's basically sort of a history of censorship in comics, the uh, goings-on with uh, Frederick Wortham, his book, The Seduction of the Innocent, the hearings in Congress, and all that stuff. And honestly, you know, guys, I've never actually read Seduction of, of the Innocent, but if I don't miss my guess, I believe that M. Middleton actually has. She released an episode of, I believe it was... Was it the short box showcase? I think maybe it was short box showcase. Maybe it was. Ah, oh, fuck. I don't remember. Anyway, but the name of the episode, uh, you know, whichever, whichever show it was a part of. The name of the episode was in the clutches of the code or in the clutches of the comics code. But she actually went through seduction of the innocent. And it's just. You know, Frank Miller even talked about this whenever he was going through, again, that infamous speech at the the uh, Diamond uh, Comics seminar. He talked about revisionism that had happened in the comic book industry where the basically Congress came knocking and people were scared shitless. And basically the history that's grown up around this is that Frederick Wortham was – even by 1950s standards, he was just this kind of puritanical, just sort of busybody, almost weirdo about about things. And if I recall correctly, M in her episode in the Clutches of the Comics Code, she basically it's been forever since I listened to that episode. It's been like four years or something like that, but five years or it's been a long time, is the point. She basically said that, you know. Wortham has been very much misunderstood, especially by uh, people within the last 20 years going up to today. Who people think he is and what he actually was, those are two very different things. And, you know, she basically set the record straight on a lot of different things. Again, this revisionist history pops up and it's easy to just forget that there is a book out there. It does have a title. You can find it and you can read it. And it's like M. Middleton figured out, okay, well, if the book is out there, why don't I read it and see what it actually says instead of depending on what other people say about it. And she mentioned stuff that that's in that book that, guys, it really, it challenged a lot of the assumptions that I'd made about that book, about Wortham, about all that stuff. You know, I thought I, 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 based on this bullshit revisionist history that I've been fed by people with a financial interest in feeding it to me, I, I, I made certain assumptions about how things really went with the Senate, with Wortham, with the book, all of that stuff. And uh, M basically, she basically challenged virtually every single assumption that I'd ever made about that. And... Honestly, I had no real right to be surprised by that because M Miller said, I mean, this was a long time ago now that he gave that speech. And I've been aware of this speech since just about the time he gave it. He said, look, 
what happened and what you think happened are two very different things. Trust me on this. And so I was warned, and yet somehow M still caught me completely off guard with that episode. And you know what? I honestly don't think I ever sent her feedback about that. I'm thinking about it now, and I honestly don't think I ever did. So I don't know if she listens to my show, but M, if you're listening, I mean, man, you talk about sending me to school with that episode. You you certainly did that. And my point here is to say this article that's all about Wortham and seduction of the innocent and basically how things are alleged to have happened in in the industry. I must say, guys, that a lot of this stuff is dependent upon the sort of revisionist elements that Miller himself very loudly decried in his his Diamond Comics speech. So anyway, I just want to throw all that out there. I'm really not interested in getting too deep into the blood and guts of all that because, I mean, with this... With this article, there's so much fiction in here that, or not even fiction, that's just being mean, but there's just so much, there are so many inaccuracies to this that it it's almost like it's not really worth it to separate fact from fiction when, honestly, I've just got better things to do. <laughs> you know, it's really that simple. Now, getting into page 104, this is entitled A Tale from the Crypt. Uh, by Robert Hombrecht, and the subtitle of it says, A History of Horror in Comics. And so let's face it, you can't really talk about horror comics without talking at least somewhat about EC Comics. Now, when it comes to horror comics, I mean, I, I don't think that EC, especially these days, I don't think, or by these days, I mean, by the time you start getting into 1994, when this issue came out, this issue of Wizard came out, I don't think that EC necessarily had a monopoly anymore on horror comics. There had been some interesting things done with horror comics over the years. Tomb of Dracula, for example, from the 70s. I mean, just that by itself is... I don't know. I just... I don't want to say that EC Comics had the same monopoly on, on horror comics that they once did. But it's like at the same time, you're not doing your fucking job if what you want to do is come up with some kind of a comprehensive history of of horror comics and you don't mention EC. It's like, what are you doing, guy? And so this, again, this is one of the things that I think Wizard did really, really well that people just don't ever fucking stop to talk about is look we're all products of uh, of our own perspective okay we all come to this hobby with our own personal histories our own personal baggage our own personal preferences so on and so forth right we all have to start somewhere guys and the simple fact of the matter is that nobody comes out of the womb knowing everything that there is to know about comics, okay? No one does. And so the value, or part of the value of Wizard, you would get articles like this from time to time that says, hey guys, I know that you like the superhero stuff, there's nothing wrong with the superhero stuff, but there are other genres of comics. There are other things that you can be reading, number one. And number two, there have been some amazingly good 
uh, horror comics that have been uh, published over the years. And there's this really amazing company, EC Comics, and they published all of these really cool fucking stories back in uh, the 40s and the 50s. And they just did some great stuff. Just, man, look at these covers. This is all just so cool. And, or here's this creator that you have never really heard of before, but he's got this big and deep history in the industry and he's done some amazingly badass stuff and you should check into that. Or here's this amazing, you know, basically one of the things that wizard would do really well is they would provide the reader kids that were my age and God knows younger, you know, uh, basically a fucking shit ton of millennials who thought that we knew a little something, something about, about comics because of the fact that we like, Batman or or we collect Spider-Man or just something like that, you know? And then what you find out is, no, there's there's this entire world of stuff that you never would have known otherwise. If all you do is just go to your LCS every month and buy whatever new stuff is on the stand, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. By all means, buy the new stuff. But keep in mind, there are some real golden nuggets from the past. You know, there's these amazing creators or these amazing stories, these amazing genres just all this other stuff that exists that you don't know about until somebody tells you and wizard would fucking tell you this. I don't think this was the first time that I heard of EC comics, but I, I do think this may have actually been the first time that I learned something about EC comics that they, this is more than just a bunch of boomers who are, kind of fixated on the comics of their youth. I mean, yes, I'm sure that was an element of it, but there is an objectively good quality to these EC comics that holds up guys to this fucking day. And so all this hype about it, I eventually went, uh, when I eventually uh, checked into EC comics, I, I must say I was not disappointed. They are very different you know, very different from the comics that were being published at the time. And God knows the, the, the types of comics that I'd primarily been exposed to up to that point. And the logical extension of all this is, is kind of asking oneself, okay, so fine. If EC comics are horror comics and they are, and if these are good comics and they are, might there be other horror comics out there that I should take a look at? And yes, there are. And so now you've discovered a a, a genre of comics that you otherwise never would have known about, never would have cared about. But now you've got something new that you can read, you know, from time to time. And I don't know that that to me is is worth a lot. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to defend Wizard to the fucking hilt. So anyway, so that's like, those are really the the main things in this issue that I, that I wanted to talk about. Now, I wonder how I'm doing on time here. Yeah, I've got a little bit of time to get into some other stuff. I can tackle a few things, um, sort of, sort of in passing. Uh, first off, uh, page number 113, uh, we get a look at some Wildcats action figures and it's like on the one hand, like, are these the greatest action figures that anybody has ever created? No, probably not. But I, to this day, I just think these are some really good looking uh, action figures, especially for their time. Like considering what standards were 
back in 1994. These Wildcats figures, uh, we've got, this is uh, uh, Zealot, Spartan, Hellspont, Warblade, and Maul. These are some really fucking cool-looking toys, I think. And I, again, I mean, I I've, I think I've banged this drum a lot of times already, but it's like, one must make priorities when one is a kid trying to collect comics in the 90s on basically like a, however much it was, like five or ten or whatever my allowance was back in those, back in those days, like however much per week, you know, uh, just doing odd jobs, chores here and there, saving up lunch money, trying to basically cobble together as much money as you possibly can to get as much stuff as you possibly can. There are sacrifices that had, that had to be made. One of which was not buying Wildcats action figures, but that was a regret. It was definitely a regret. So, being as this this is the Halloween issue of Wizard for the Year, obviously there's going to be a costume contest. Now, guys, we do need to emphasize the fact that this... Look, cosplay was less of a thing back in the 90s than it is today. These days, every jackass and his brother, or more likely his sister... They're all cosplaying. It was a lot more difficult back in the 90s, put it that way. And so some of these some of these uh, costumes are, let's face it, they're just kind of lame, you know? Others of these costumes, though, are, they are just, like, here's a lame one, right? There's this, I don't even know what the fuck, um, on page 55, you know what? I'm just going to criticize. So I'm not going to say this person's name, but there's somebody who is uh, dressed up as, as Wolverine. Barely. I mean, this barely qualifies as a Wolverine costume. It's just bad, but yet it still looks pretty decent compared to somebody else whose name. In fact, I don't know if I want to say any of these people's names, uh, but somebody else who's dressed on that same page, uh, number 55, who's dressed up as Cyclops, and it looks like elements of this costume are made out of construction paper. So, what the fuck? Now, having said all of that, there's somebody who's dressed up as uh, the comic book character Grendel. Again, page 55. And this, admittedly, this is kind of a simple costume, but, you know, sometimes with simplicity, there comes elegance. And in this case, I think this is a really just cool-looking costume. Now, yeah, he's looks like it's pretty obvious he's... It looks like he's wearing just plain old white socks. But still, it looks... This still looks all right. <clears throat> the rest of the bodysuit's black. He's got that double-bladed thing. It just... It, this is just a really neat-looking costume. I think this turned out really well. Another one... This is on page 54. This chick is all dolled up like Vampirella. And if I remember correctly, I mean, this chick, I think Wizard received like a bunch of letters from readers who were very desperate to find out uh, how to get in touch with this woman. And I think they wisely kept her information private. It's just weird. Like, who the fuck? Like, why would you write? to a magazine wanting to find out about... God, that is just... 
bizarre to me. Now, here's one that actually turned out really well, like apart from Vampirella on page 54. I mean, apart from her on page 55, there's this chick who's all dolled up like Psylocke. And again, this is not exactly like a super difficult costume. I think what really makes this costume work is it looks like she really did color her hair purple. This, it doesn't look like she's wearing a wig. This looks like the real thing. And so she's got uh, the purple hair, the purple outfit. She's just doing a great, this is just a great uh, costume for uh, Psylocke. I think it actually turned out really well. Uh, then we get some Mortal Kombat characters. This is on page 54. And I should emphasize, guys, this was all, th these pictures were all created not so much before the advent of Photoshop, but before most people would have had access to Photoshop. So this guy who's dressed up like Raiden, he's got like glowy, kind of cheesy looking electrical eyes. Keep in mind that this would have been like kind of cutting edge technology for the consumer to have back in 1994. So there's something to keep in mind there. And flipping my way backwards here for some reason, page 53, a bunch of people are wearing crow makeup and the wizard staff, I mean, they even, they even say like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Like a bunch of people sent us uh, crow costumes and stuff. I don't know what's going on. It's like, well, that's, that was a really popular movie and it really meant a lot to people. And so it's kind of understandable, but anyway, so, um, basically four people, three men, one, uh, one woman all wearing uh, crow makeup. And I don't know. I think they all turned out, they all turned out okay. So anyway, apparently though, this is just the smallest fraction of the crow submissions that that wizard receives. So I don't know what to say there. There's uh there's a there's on also on page fifty three. This is actually a really neat looking Batman Returns Catwoman costume that this girl is wearing. I think it turned out really well. And I can't help thinking that you know what maybe the real secret here is that this is not a good costume and maybe she knew that. And so what she's doing is she's kind of kneeling down on the ground. And so you don't really see a whole lot of her costume, but like you're basically seeing the best parts. That's really what it comes down to. You're seeing the best parts of her costume, but if you could see the whole thing like top to bottom, it maybe wouldn't look as good. And so with this kind of selective angle, she's basically showing you the best part. I like, I don't, obviously I don't know if that's true or not, but it just sort of makes me wonder there. So anyway, oh, and I should say, by the way, that there are some, uh, captions that get included with several of these entries and uh look some of them are all right some of these are actually kind of funny right like again they the uh chick who's uh all dolled up like catwoman the uh, caption says hey look at me look at me i'm a baby catwoman i'm marketable i'm marketable which is kind of amusing and then there's another one this is a kid this is on page 52 this is a kid who's uh, dressed up like Gambit. And this is actually kind of funny. The uh, caption says, what if Archie Bunker was an X-Man? <laughs> and he, it, it, it is true. He does just kind of have this like young Archie Bunker kind of look about him. So I don't know. It's, it's just kind of funny. I like that. Uh, so uh, let's see. What's another one? Oh, yeah. One of my favorites, oddly enough, this is on page 51, one of the better costumes uh, that was done here 
I think, is actually this guy who's dressed up like the Scarlet Spider. Um, let's be real, guys. This is this can't be a very difficult cosplay to manage, especially if you're just doing like kind of like a photo shoot. You know, this can't be very difficult, but I still think this actually turned out really well, you know. But like I say, it's how hard could it be? It's basically just a red bodysuit, red mask, and a blue hoodie with cut-off sleeves. Not that difficult, you know, but it just, I don't know, it just, I think it looks just really cool. Just, I don't know, it just, I think it turned out really well. And the caption for this says, Spider-Clone Guy, Spider-Clone Guy, does whatever a Spider-Clone Guy can. Spins a web, any size, sucks real bad, you know why. <laughs> yeah, Ben Riley was getting no love from Image, even in 1994, so, uh, let's see, uh, there's a kind of a Marvel theme on, uh, page 51 on the far right side of the page, top to bottom, Captain America, Wolverine, Spider, well, actually, no, oh, wait, what am I saying, no, these aren't all Marvel, wow, in my mind, for some reason, it was the Punisher at the very bottom, but no, this is actually the Phantom, so no, I take it back, there's not or at least there's not a consistent Marvel theme. You've got Marvel's Captain America, Marvel's Wolverine, you've got Marvel's Spider-Man, and then the Phantom. So, uh, whoops. But anyway, all of these costumes, actually, I think they actually turned out pretty well. Uh, Captain America, especially, I think, turned out well. It looks like this guy went to a demolition site or something like that. He basically dropped a Nazi flag on the ground, and so he's standing in his uh, Captain America outfit. He's just standing atop. Uh, of the rubble, and it looks like Berlin the morning after, and uh, it just, except for the tree, uh, like the tree branches that are above him, this actually looks pretty convincing, <laughs> you know, so anyway, pretty creative, uh, let's see, and then another favorite, this is on page 50, this is, this is uh, Spawn, and I don't I like it's good, but it's it's like it's a near miss. First off, it looks like the chains are just too small. Like the chains that go around his waist are just too small. Like there's not enough slack to him. Whereas the chain that that is on his shoulders, there's way too much slack to that. The skull on well, the belt line, shall we say, that's just way too big. This is a near miss. You know, with a few nips and tucks here and there, I think this actually could have turned out a lot better. And the other thing is, it's daylight outside when this picture was taken. And, you know, any picture of Spawn just kind of demands to be taken at night. So this is good. Don't get me wrong. I like it, but it's I do see a lot of room for improvement. So, um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it for... That's pretty much it for the uh, the uh, costume section. Let's see. What else? Oh, yes, 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 yes. How could I almost forgot. Yeah, this is uh, Hunk and Babe. And uh, I'm one of the few people that actually kind of likes Hunk and Babe. I remember that, like... Again, this is this is not something that I've seen done in like uh, on facebook like recently but i do remember there was a time when 
It was not it was not the two true freaks group, I don't think, but there was some Facebook group of which I was a member where it was like every couple of days it seemed like people were just making fun of Wizard in general and Hunk and Babe in particular. But on page 59, this was a good reminder that you're not that nobody can afford to read every single comic book that was coming out, especially back in the 90s. And so this is this was kind of an interesting little introduction to certain characters whom you may not be reading, which, you know, the hunk this month, that's Steel, which I was reading at that time. So whatever. So obviously I knew who he was. But Diva from Stormwatch. Well, as I've hopefully made clear by now, I've I, I was never able to follow Except for Spawn, I was never able to follow any Image comic as closely as I wanted, and Stormwatch just <laughs> fucking forget it. So I had no idea who Diva was, and anyway, it was just kind of a neat little glimpse of the character, and it's just, I, I thought, you know, she's got a cool, well, kind of a cool name, definitely a cool look, and it actually made me want to buy some fucking Stormwatch comics. So, anyways, so let's see. What else? I wonder about the top 10 comics this month. Just going to flip over to that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, here we go. Wow, and look at this. Wow, okay, so the that whole bad girl thing, that was definitely in full swing by this point in 1994. Let's see, we've got one, two, three... Four, well, five, mm. Ar four, arguably five, uh, bad girl comics in the top 10 comics on page 144. Obviously, you've got Lady Death number one, which I plan to talk about on this show at some point or another. You've got She number one. Eh, yeah, maybe. Vengeance of Vampirella, number one, which I'm definitely going to talk about on this show at some point or another. Uh, Zorro, number three, which was the introduction of Lady Rawhide. Uh, Lady Death, number two. And then the kind of questionable one is Evil Ernie, which I don't think Evil Ernie, Resurrection, number one. I don't know if Lady Death actually appears Actually, does she? Oh, fuck it. I'm just going to read the little description here. So it says, to help ensure... Jeez. Okay, this is one of those times when a copy editor... You really need to pay attention to your business here, guy. Um, to help ensure that this series does... Well, well, you're not... There is no insurance policy going on here. You are ensuring. So it should be ensure with an E. So to help ensure that this series does well, the Chaos Comics crew put three surefire winners in this kickoff issue. Lady Death. Okay, well, no, there's the answer. Okay, so right there. All right, so let's just do a quick recount. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, so of the top ten, five of the top ten comics are in some way or another bad girl related. Now, guys, I don't know how accurate it really is to call she a bad girl. I mean, honestly, what I remember of of she, she's basically, well, she's not even remotely close to a bad girl, right? So 
there's that. And Lady Rawhide, I don't know so much about her first appearance, but at least in her mini, like the two Tops comics miniseries, I wouldn't categorize her as a bad girl there either. So, I mean, honestly, to whatever degree this whole, this whole bad girl thing ever had any kind of real validity to it, which I'm not sure is all that much, I can only really think of two characters that it ever applied to, and those are Lady Death and Vampirella. And I'm not trying to take anything away from these other characters. What I remember of She, I, I like She. I think those are some really good comics. Uh, what I remember of Lady Rawhide, again, really good comics. I like those comics. But are they bad girl in the same way as Lady Death and, to whatever degree, Vampirella? And I kind of have to say, you know what? No. So, I don't know. But whatever. It was the 90s, so let them have it. If you want to consider Lady Death, or rather, if you want to consider Lady Rawhide and She and Dawn and Evangeline and all those other ones, if you want to consider them to be bad girls, feel free. But just understand that to me, when you say bad girl, who I think of will be Lady Death and Vampirella. And really, that's that's just about it. So, and as it happens, I think that's probably just about it for this for this issue of Wizard. I mean, honestly, I didn't think I would be talking about this particular issue for this long, but somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, here we are. So, over an hour uh, worth of, or no, it looks like actually I'm closer to right about an hour. So, <coughs> so. Just about an hour's worth of uh, content for one issue of, of Wizard Magazine. You know what? I swear to think that's just about how long it would take me to read an issue of Wizard back in the old days. So, I don't know. But whatever. Uh, point is, I think that's pretty much it for this issue of Wizard, which also means that's pretty much it for me for this week. Now... I have no idea what I'm going to be talking about in the next episode, or for that matter, even when the next episode is going to be coming out. I just know that sooner or later, there probably will be one. So until then, bye, everybody. I will see you next time. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. 
There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.